Hello and welcome to the summer 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we have had another avalanche of marriage equality news across the United States uh, since our last podcast in the beginning of June. Can you bring us up to speed, Art? Okay, on June 1st, uh, the Illinois marriage equality law officially went into effect. Okay, so we picked up another state, although pursuant to various court orders, uh, people had been getting married prior to then in Illinois. But then on June 6th, we got a decision in Wolf versus Walker in Wisconsin from Senior U.S. District Judge Barbara B. Crabb, uh, ruling in favor of the right to marry and the right of marriage recognition. Uh, she held that the right to marry is a fundamental right, and uh, however, uh, she didn't even need to do strict scrutiny to strike down the ban in that state. She said there was no rational basis for uh, the ban in Wisconsin, but she stayed her decision. However, uh, Judge Crabb uh, ran into some unanticipated difficulties. When she issued her decision, she didn't issue a stay because she didn't issue an order. She just uh, directed the parties to get back to her on a proposed order. Uh, but the fact that she didn't issue a stay led some uh, clerks to jump the gun and start issuing marriage licenses. So uh, several hundred same-sex couples got married in the week between the time when she issued her opinion and she issued her stay a week later. And that is on appeal now to the Seventh Circuit. Uh, on June 24th, we had a big deal that wasn't a big deal, but that is a big deal for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, the uh, You'll recall back in January, the Ninth Circuit ruled in a case called Smith-Klein-Beecham versus Averitt Laboratories that sexual orientation claims uh, under the Equal Protection Clause merit heightened scrutiny. Uh, that was in the context of a peremptory strike of a juror because of his sexual orientation or perceived sexual orientation. Uh, one of the judges of the circuit had called for on-bank review, so they had to poll the circuit. And on uh, June 24th, the circuit announced that there was not a majority of judges for on-bank review. So that decision will stand, which means that heightened scrutiny will be the standard in the Ninth Circuit for the foreseeable future which is particularly significant because there are appeals in marriage equality cases pending in the Ninth Circuit from Hawaii, Nevada, and Idaho, and there are pending lawsuits in the Ninth Circuit in Montana, Alaska, and Arizona. Uh, there was a dissenting opinion by the judge who probably was the one who called for the on-bank review, Judge O'Scanlan, who, among other things, bemoaned the fact that the court was basically ruling on the marriage equality stuff uh, by indirection here mm -hmm. without a full on-bank uh, consideration. So that seems to set the fate of uh, the marriage bans in the Ninth Circuit, which is, by population, the country's largest circuit. Then the next day, on June 25th, Indiana, uh, Chief U.S. District Judge Richard L. Young uh, ruled in Baskin against Bogan that same-sex couples have a right to marry. Uh, he said that the right to marry is a fundamental right, uh, both for purposes of due process and equal protection, and he stayed his opinion pending appeal. Uh, the state is appealing to the Seventh Circuit, similar to Wisconsin. And we should mention, uh, this is sort of taking things out of order, but within the past few days, and we're recording this podcast in mid-July, 
within the past two days, the Seventh Circuit has said that they are going to consolidate the Indiana and Wisconsin appeals and hold the arguments before one panel on the same day, and that day is August 13th. So they're pushing it. That's really fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we will have a decision probably from the Seventh Circuit before the Supreme Court reconvenes in the fall. All right, so that's June 25th. Now, the other thing on June 25th, real biggie, and this is our lead story in the summer issue, the Tenth Circuit became the first Circuit Court of Appeals since the Windsor case to rule in a marriage equality claim in Kitchen versus Herbert, the case from Utah, and they held that the right to marry claimed in this case is a fundamental right. They rejected the state's argument that uh, same-sex couples are looking for a new right They said, no, they're just looking to be included in an existing right, uh, the right to marry, which the Supreme Court has numerous times said is a fundamental right, and that they certainly, uh, the state fails the compelling interest test here. They said, even if you credited that some of their goals would be compelling, there's no way that they can show that excluding same-sex couples from marriage advances those goals. And excluding same-sex couples from marriage isn't going to guarantee that more kids are going to be raised by heterosexual married parents. There's just no connection between the two. So the Tenth Circuit rejected that claim, and also on equal protection grounds, they said, because this involves a fundamental right, it's also subject to strict scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. They never got into the issue of whether sexual orientation claims merit heightened scrutiny or not. Uh, So that's a very focused decision on fundamental right well, unfortunately, we had a dissent, correct? So our we first had a dissent. federal a two judge to, one. to find, yeah. uh, right. to find uh, uh, we, the other way. We, we had a dissenting judge. Uh, so this is the first federal judge since Windsor uh, to rule against us, but was in, Thankfully the, in, dissent. in the minority. And then that set off the speculation, what will Attorney General Sean Reyes and Governor Gary Herbert do? Will they petition for on-bank review, which would tie the whole thing up in the Tenth Circuit for another several months? or will they petition the Supreme Court directly? And after cogitating for a few days, uh, long enough so that the ACLU filed a motion with the court to lift the stay on the grounds that the state was dragging their feet, uh, they finally announced, uh, actually on the day that they would have had to file for on-bank rehearing, they announced that they weren't going to, they're going to file a cert petition, and they have a few more weeks to do that. So we now know that when the Supreme Court reconvenes late in September to review the cert petitions filed over the summer, they will have at least one marriage equality cert petition. Uh, And I would speculate probably more because one of the things we're waiting for is the Fourth Circuit, which heard oral arguments several months ago on the Virginia case. But there already is a a circuit split, if you can is a circuit. There is a circuit split because back uh, in the last decade, uh, there was a challenge to the application of the Nebraska marriage amendment, and the Eighth Circuit upheld it. So uh, technically there's a circuit split. Uh, so we don't even need to have two cases up there. And if we are if we just had post-Windsor cases, they might all be victories. Yeah. So there might not be a circuit split. So that was the Tenth Circuit. A few days later on July 1st in Kentucky, uh, U.S. District Judge John G. Habern II, who had previously ruled in a marriage recognition case, expanded that ruling to a right-to-marry case. Uh, So now we have both right-to-marry and recognition from Kentucky. The prior decision by Judge Habern was already on appeal to the Sixth Circuit. Uh, I don't know how fast the state's going to move, but the Sixth Circuit is holding consolidated arguments in marriage equality cases from four different states on August 6th. So perhaps they'll squeeze this one in. So that was July 1st. 
July 9th, Colorado. You know, it's like, who's the state of the week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how it was uh, over the past uh, month and a half. So Colorado, uh, we had a decision by a state trial judge in the case of Brinkman against Long. And uh, the judge uh, found that, first of all, uh, that state trial judges have jurisdiction and authority and are required to apply the federal constitution. So the fact that Colorado has a marriage amendment was irrelevant. Uh, the, the judge was deciding this on federal law. And the judge decided that uh, there's a fundamental right. He was very strongly influenced by the Tenth Circuit opinion that had just come out, uh, even though uh, the ruling of the trial judge in Colorado is not appealable to the Tenth Circuit. It goes to the Colorado Supreme Court and from there to the U.S. Supreme Court by certiorari. Uh, And I don't know how fast things are going to move in Colorado. The uh, attorney general is pushing hard uh, for a quick resolution in the state Supreme Court because of something else that happened in Colorado, which I refer to as the rebellion of the clerks. And uh, what happened in Colorado is when the Tenth Circuit issued its decision in the Utah case, Colorado was in the Tenth Circuit. And although the Tenth Circuit stayed its decision to give the state of Utah time to file a cert petition or an on-bank petition, uh, a clerk in Boulder, Colorado, said, well, that stay is for Utah. But now a federal court of appeals has declared that same-sex couples have a right to marry. I'm going to issue marriage licenses. And it is uh, a curious turn of events that this is in Boulder because way back in the 1970s, a clerk in Boulder gave out some marriage licenses to same-sex couples uh, and only stopped doing it when the attorney general threatened to sue her. So here we go all over again. Hillary Hall, the uh, county clerk in Boulder, started issuing licenses. Uh, the attorney general, Mr. Southers, threatened to sue her, but that didn't give her a pause. She kept handing them out, so he did. He sued her. And on the same day that uh, a state judge in Adams County was issuing this decision, holding the Colorado marriage ban unconstitutional, uh, the court in Boulder County was hearing the petition by Attorney General Southers for an injunction against uh, against Hillary Hall. Uh, the court on July 10th denied the injunction, which is, you know, it's, it's really fun because after the court denied the injunction, two other city clerks jumped in, in Denver and in uh, Pueblo County. Yeah. So now in three counties, people are getting marriage licenses. Uh, There's uh, an attempt to get some kind of emergency relief, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet, as we're talking. So marriage licenses are still being given out in Colorado in a few counties. Meanwhile, this was a state that only recently got civil unions, and that was supposedly a huge triumph to get that passed in the state. This is is amazing what's happening. And then, of course, on July 11th, we had a new development in the Tenth Circuit. Back in May, a uh, district judge ruled in a case brought by the ACLU that the the state of Utah must recognize the marriages that took place after the marriage equality decision back in December, but before the Supreme Court issued a stay on January 6th. And there were, I think, something like 1,400 marriages that took place involving same-sex couples. The state was refusing to recognize them. Uh, The governor took the position where he said, we're not contesting that they were valid marriages, what we're saying is that because the decision has stayed, that means the existing law remains in effect, and under the Utah Constitution, we may not recognize them. 
Well, the ACLU went to court on behalf of those couples and got a ruling from a federal district judge, a different judge than the judge in the marriage equality case, saying that, no, once you're married, you're married. Uh, The state uh, had no rational basis for refusing to recognize those marriages uh, and uh, refused to, uh, to issue a permanent stay pending appeal but gave them a temporary stay to give them a chance to ask the Tenth Circuit what they're going to do about that. And the Tenth Circuit on July 11 said, well, we see no reason to issue an injunction here. Uh, we have to recall that back in, in December, the Tenth Circuit didn't want to stay Judge Shelby's ruling in the Utah right. case in the first place. And now the Tenth Circuit, of course, has ruled that same-sex couples have a right to marry. So they said, well, we don't see any reason to uh, stay this pending appeal, but you know, we'll be nice to the state. We'll give you to July 21st to petition the Supreme Court. So the petition would go to Justice Sotomayor, who uh, the previous time when she received the petition, she referred it to the full court. But that, of course, was during the middle of the court's term. This is the middle of the summer. Justices are dispersed. They don't all hang out in Washington in the summer. Right. Remember, Washington was built on a swamp. People, <laughs> who, have, people who have a way to get out of there in the summer do. <laughs> so, but, you know, in these days of email and yeah. Skype and everything else, the court could certainly consider this yeah. uh, if she wants to refer to them. So sometime in the next week or two, uh, since we're recording this on July 15th, uh, we'll have a decision from the Supreme Court whether to stay that ruling or whether the state of Utah has to recognize those. And then just to, to summarize what's upcoming, uh, the Fourth Circuit, we should have a ruling in the Virginia case soon. The Sixth Circuit, as I mentioned, holding arguments August 6th on the cases from Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. The Seventh Circuit holding arguments on August 13th on the cases from Indiana and Wisconsin. The Ninth Circuit holding arguments the first week in September on the cases from Hawaii, Nevada, and Idaho. No date has been set yet by the Fifth Circuit uh, in the argument on the Texas case. Uh, and cases are pending before trial courts in the Fourth, Fifth, Eighth, Ninth, Tenth, and Eleventh Circuits. In the Fourth Circuit, uh, trial judges in uh, West Virginia and South Carolina have both said, I'm just going to put this case on hold till the Fourth Circuit rules. And then when the Fourth Circuit rules, uh, they will issue their summary judgment rulings. Right. Uh, so things will be happening over the summer. It's not going to be slow. Yeah. We're going to have oral arguments in at least two circuits. If you count as the end of summer, September 21st, three circuits. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have probably rulings on summary judgment motions uh, in a few more states around the country. We've yet to hear from some of the courts in the Eighth Circuit, and I would think the trial judges there have a difficult task because there's that old uh, Nebraska Eighth Circuit decision hovering over them. So mm-hmm. they, they have to make an initial determination on their summary judgment motions whether Windsor changes things so much that the Eighth Circuit precedent is no longer valid. And if they follow the lead of the Ninth Circuit, they will come to that conclusion. So we may win some summary judgments in the states in the Eighth Circuit as well. All right. A lot to digest there. Uh, sort of exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're going to switch to some less uh, encouraging news. Uh, also out of the Supreme Court, and discuss a disturbing recent decision that has raised many eyebrows in the LGBT community. We're back discussing the big decision out of the Supreme Court on the last day of the term, the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, just to start off, Art, can you tell us some of the facts and the holding from Hobby Lobby? Okay, this was a case involving the mandate under the Affordable Care Act 
that employers with more than 50 employees provide health insurance. And uh, in order to meet the requirements of the Act, they have to cover a uh, specified range of uh, pharmaceuticals, treatments, things. And uh, among the uh, specifications are various means of contraception for women. Uh, Hobby Lobby is a closely held family-owned corporation with 13,000 employees in hundreds of locations around the country, but it's not a publicly traded corporation. So people, as some people discuss in this case, are referring to it as a small business. But it's hardly a small business. It's a big chain, retail chain. But at any rate, uh, the owners, uh, the family who own Hobby Lobby, uh, believe that certain forms of contraception are actually uh, abortion agents. And, and this is not true, but... Well, there, there's, there's, there's dispute about it, but most reputable medical authorities say that these are not abortion agents. But it depends how you define the beginning of life, you know, uh, and the methods that are used to prevent... Uh, uh, attachment, right? Yeah, prevent attachment. Uh, so at any rate, they have religious objections, and they say uh, because of our religious objections, we should not be required... To provide this coverage, we don't. We feel that it would endanger our immortal souls. We would be complicit with providing this contraception to our employees. Now, when uh, the Affordable Care Act was put together and the regulations were promulgated, the Obama administration recognized that there might be uh, religiously affiliated employers who would have religious objections, and they provided a workaround for them. If they will certify on a form provided by uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, they certify that they have religious objections, then uh, they, the notice is sent to the insurance company that the insurance company is to provide the coverage but bill the government for it. So the employer with the religious objections isn't paying for it. All right. Uh, but that workaround is only provided under the regulations to religiously affiliated corporations like a Catholic hospital, for example, or a, uh, a, a Baptist college or something like that. But Hobby Lobby is a for-profit business corporation. Mm -hmm. It's not a not-for-profit religiously affiliated charitable corporation or right. educational or whatever. Uh, so they weren't entitled to the workaround. So they claimed that under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a statute passed in the 1990s, uh, they were entitled to an exemption. And the argument was, first of all, as a closely held corporation, the religious beliefs of the owners can be imputed to the corporation. So we do have a genuine exercise of religion here, they argued. Uh, secondly, they argued, the government doesn't have a compelling interest to provide these particular uh, contraceptive methods because we're covering other contraceptive methods, which you might consider a little bit contradictory because uh, the Catholic Church isn't crazy about contraception either. Right. But evidently, the Green family uh, is parsing things very closely here. Uh, so they were just challenging those certain uh, methods. And uh, they said, even if the government has a compelling interest, we think we should be entitled to the workaround that they're providing for religiously affiliated corporations so that we don't have to pay, you know. Uh, so uh, that went to the court, and the court divided five to four. Uh, opinion for the five Catholic men on the court, and that's who it was. It was the five Catholic men on the court. Uh, opinion by Justice Alito. Uh, first of all, he said, it seems clear that, in fact, corporations can exercise religion. Uh, first of all, he said, the... Uh, 
in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it refers to persons or people or individuals, but it doesn't define that term. And if you look at the Dictionary Act, which is a federal statute which provides definitions for commonly used terms that aren't defined in their own statute, it says that a person includes a corporation. And we all remember on the campaign trail, Mitt Romney assured us that corporations are people too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they are for purposes of federal law, says Justice Alito, and therefore they are covered by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And he said, furthermore, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act clearly uh, would apply to religious corporations and it would apply to religiously affiliated corporations. So why not apply it to business corporations? Uh, He said, now, the case before us involves a family-owned, closely-held corporation, not a publicly traded corporation. We're only ruling on the case before us. Uh, But there's nothing about the reasoning behind the ruling that wouldn't support extending it to any corporation. Uh, But, of course, the uh, religious belief has to be sincerely held. And uh, here, Justice Alito says, well, it isn't the role of the court to inquire into the nature of this religious belief and to ask whether it's true or not because you can't do that with religious beliefs. They're a matter of belief, of faith, not of fact. Uh, So it doesn't matter if they're mistaken about whether these means of contraception are uh, abortion. He says, as long as they sincerely believe that they are and their belief is based on their religious uh, convictions, that's enough for us. So we turn to the question, does the government have a compelling interest here? And they said, yes, the government... We will assume that for purposes of our analysis. The government has a compelling interest. But the statute says that if the government has a compelling interest, there's also an issue of whether the policy the government has adopted is the least restrictive alternative when it comes to uh, accommodating free exercise of religion. And here they said, well, there are two alternatives that the government could take that would be less restrictive on free exercise. One is the government could just directly pay for the coverage itself. Or secondly, there's this workaround that they've already extended to the religiously affiliated corporations. Why don't they just open that up to any closely held corporation uh, that has religious objections? And that way, the corporation doesn't have to pay for it. Uh, Justice Alito noted that, in fact, there are some religiously affiliated corporations who claim that being required to fill out the form violates their free exercise rights. And he said, we're not passing on that, although uh, he noted that the court has at least in one instance given preliminary injunctive relief while the case is being decided to such an organization. Uh, In his concurring opinion, Justice Kennedy really focused on that, on the workaround thing, uh, as uh, supporting his view that there uh, is a less restrictive alternative. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, in her dissenting opinion, went wild. I mean, she was really upset, you could tell. Uh, It's one of those, you know, where she reads the thing from the bench and uh, the language is pretty uh, passionate. And she says, well, this is sort of ridiculous, the idea of religion, you know, business corporations. He said, religiously affiliated or religious corporations are obviously organized to advance the religious interests of their members. But business corporations are organized to advance the economic interests, not the religious interests of their members. Uh, So she wouldn't uh, extend the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to religious corporations. Uh, But furthermore, she said, you know, the government has a compelling interest here, and why should the cost of providing this be put on the taxpayers? 
and, and, and the people participating in insurance programs by buying policies because what's going to happen here, either the insurance company is going to raise their rates to everyone else in order to cover this or the taxpayer is going to cover it through the government. Uh, why should these corporations not have to bear the same economic burden to provide insurance to their employees? Uh, so she, she had this dissent which was uh, joined in part by the other Democratic appointees on the court, Justice Sotomayor, uh, Justice uh, Breyer, and Justice Kagan. Breyer and Kagan didn't join the part where she talked about whether corporations uh, can exercise religion because they said we don't really have to decide that in this case because we can just say even if uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does apply here, we think the government has met the test and that it's not uh, illegal under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The, the issue for, uh, for gay rights, uh, why this is of, of concern, we've seen this phenomenon now over the past uh, few years. As we've had marriage equality, we've had businesses who have refused to provide services to people based on their religious objections. And uh, certainly there are uh, uh, corporations that might not want to employ gay people and might want to raise religious objections to employ gay people. There's a new drive on now uh, to get uh, gay men to use Truvada, a medication approved by the FDA now for preventing the transmission of HIV. And uh, I can see religious uh, objections to Truvada because it enables people to have gay sex. You know, it, and it might lead to more gay sex than otherwise might take place. So, you know, there, there could be religious objections to that. Now, this decision was not a constitutional decision. This decision was based on construing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed in response to a case that held the exact opposite, Employment Division v. Smith, which held that individuals are not entitled to a religious exemption from complying with generally applicable non-laws that aren't just targeting religion. They're just laws that establish standards for everybody. Uh, so if this had been a constitutional case, the government would have won. Uh, but the Religious Freedom Restoration Act restricts what the federal government can do in overriding religious objections. Uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not apply to state laws. However, many states adopted their own Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, and that was in fact involved in New Mexico in the famous wedding photographer case, which we reported on uh, in our podcast last, uh, late last year when the New Mexico Supreme Court decided that case. Uh, that was a case of a, uh, a photographer who stated religious objections to uh, making a wedding album for a lesbian couple who were having a commitment ceremony. And the New Mexico Supreme Court said that violated the state's public accommodations law and that requiring them to uh, take the pictures and you know, put together the wedding album would not violate New Mexico's version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because corporations can't exercise religion and because the state has a compelling interest in preventing discrimination and that compelling interest cannot be satisfied by anything less restrictive than forbidding discrimination. Uh, now, this is, this is a point of contention that people have had about the Hobby Lobby decision what effect would it have on discrimination claims uh, as opposed to health care coverage claims? Uh, and as to that, Justice Alito in his opinion said, well, of course we wouldn't allow an employer to use their religion to justify discriminating on the basis of race in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Well, race is a suspect classification in the eyes of the Supreme Court. 
what would they think about uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act if it were passed, which uh, was supposed to forbid uh, private sector employers from discriminating based on sexual orientation and gender identity? What if an employer like Hobby Lobby doesn't want to employ openly gay people or transgender people? Could they have a religious objection claim? Uh, we've never had a Supreme Court decision holding that sexual orientation is a suspect classification or gender identity for that matter. But we have had uh, cases where the Supreme Court has found a First Amendment override of generally applicable laws for gay people in Hurley and Boy Scouts. Yeah. So uh, it's not completely out of the question. <laughs> right. And, and, and in fact, uh, the Boy Scouts case seemed to be very dismissive about New Jersey's argument that they had a compelling interest in banning discrimination against gay people. So I said, well, compared to the freedom of association under the First Amendment that the Boy Scouts are claiming. Uh, that was not a religious uh, case as such. That right. was a, an association, association, but it was a First Amendment case. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, potentially serious problems, and one part of the fallout of that is almost immediately after the decision came out, uh, religious groups started calling for President Obama to include a broad religious exemption in the executive order that he announced during June he was going to be issuing banning sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination by federal contractors. So with federal contractors, we're talking about both for-profit businesses and not-for-profit religiously affiliated businesses who may have contracts to provide social services and things of that sort, uh, which are funded in whole or part by the federal government. So the executive order may extend to corporations who get the workaround under the Affordable Care Act. Are they going to be getting some kind of exemption? Uh, under this executive order, under the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, the version of it passed by the Senate last fall, they would because the Employment Non-Discrimination Act has a broad religious exemption in it, much broader than the religious exemption in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, as a result, over the past few weeks, almost every major uh, LGBT uh, political lobbying or legal group has come out against the current version of ENDA. Uh, they've said it's past the Senate, it's going nowhere in the House, we should rethink, and uh, we should try to have a version of ENDA introduced in the next Congress that has a narrow religious exemption similar to Title VII. Uh, Title VII's religious exemption basically says religious employers are entitled to discriminate based on religion, the religion of the applicant or employee. Uh, and... Uh, that would not automatically shelter them from liability if they discriminate based on sexual orientation, even if they say it's religiously motivated, because some employers may say, well, I have a religious belief that women shouldn't do the following kind of work, but they're not allowed to discriminate based on sex under Title VII. They're not entitled to the religious exemption. So interesting uh, developments coming up ahead. Uh, the president's executive order, uh, the White House has not revealed what the text is. It's still being drafted. There's also another executive order the president said he would issue uh, banning gender identity discrimination in the federal uh, service in the executive branch. Uh, that obviously won't have a religious exemption because it just involves public employment. But uh, awful lot of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just keeping all the balls in the air is Absolutely. difficult. All right, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing an interesting bankruptcy case involving a wife who got HIV from her secretly gay husband.
we're back discussing the case of Inri John R. Bradley, a Massachusetts bankruptcy court decision involving a woman who had contracted HIV from her husband during their honeymoon and who subsequently won a California state court judgment against him for negligence, negligent infliction of emotional distress, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and fraud, awarding total damages of $12.5 million. The husband then attempted to discharge this debt as part of a bankruptcy. And what happened after that, Art? Well, this is this is a pretty crazy case. Uh, it seems that, that John R. Bradley uh, is a self-described sex addict, but he didn't tell his fiancée that. Uh, he didn't tell her he was having sex with men and evidently unprotected sex with men. Uh, but he was concerned enough to get an HIV test before they got married, and he tested negative. So they get married, they go off on the honeymoon, they have sex for the first time, and I, I guess... I mean, I don't know the ways of straight men, but I assume that they don't use condoms on their honeymoon. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they had unprotected sex. He was actually not feeling very well on the trip home. He went to see his doctor. The doctor couldn't figure out what's wrong with him. Uh, I speculate that the doctor didn't know he was gay, so he didn't think to order an HIV test. But then, subsequently, the wife, uh, Bridget, came down with similar symptoms. And this time, the doctor sent her blood for an HIV test, and it came out positive. And subsequently, she discovered that John had been hanging out on gay websites. <laughs> and, you know, she put the two, to two, two and two together, and that was the end of that marriage. And that was, there was the lawsuit and the $12.5 million jury verdict. Uh, and so he's faced with this $12.5 million verdict. He files for bankruptcy, and he wants to discharge the debt. And she wants the court to determine that this debt of $12.5 million is not dischargeable in bankruptcy, because there's a special provision in the bankruptcy code uh, that debts arising from willful and malicious injury caused by the debtor are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So what the bankruptcy judge had to determine was uh, whether the injury to Bridget was a willful and malicious injury by John. And uh, the, the judge said, well, you know, looking at all the evidence here, it looks to me like he didn't know he was HIV positive at the time. And he clearly didn't intend to transmit HIV to her. But she says, well, look at this. He was catting around like crazy. He was having all the sex. He told me after the fact when I confronted him that he was a sex addict. So he had to know that he was placing me at risk. And the court said, well, that's not enough. Under the statute, it has to be willful and malicious, not just negligent. Uh, now, he was uh, found guilty of negligent and intentional infliction of emotional distress in the lawsuit. But what she's saying is that he intended to infect me, not just to scare me out of my wits or, or cause me severe depression or whatever. But, you know, he intended to infect me and inflict that injury on me that for the rest of my life. I'm going to be HIV positive. I'm going to have to take all these medications. Who knows how the side effects will go, how long I can live, blah, 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 blah affect my reproductive capacities. So, you know, there's a lot of injury associated with HIV infection. Uh, and that's, there's the $12.5 million verdict. But the uh, bankruptcy judge says, well, obviously, you know, I can't reverse the verdict. That's not my issue. My issue is, was this a willful and malicious injury? And I say, no, I agree with the husband. This is dischargeable in bankruptcy. So, you know, sort of an, an interesting case, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, the different standards in different forms and see how they apply. Yep. 
All right, so we will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll be discussing a New Jersey court's refusal to throw out claims for damages made by several victims of sexual orientation conversion therapy. We're going to wrap up with our of note segment for this edition. We learned a little about what goes on in gay conversion therapy from a recent decision out of New Jersey, Ferguson v. Jonah. Can you tell us the facts of this, Kate Art? Well, Jonah is an organization called Jews Offering New Alternatives for Healing, J-O-N-A-H. And uh, they're based in New Jersey, and they provide sexual orientation change therapy. Gay conversion therapy uh, with a presumably some sort of Jewish uh, twist. twist. <laughs> so uh, a bunch of uh, their patients, Michael Ferguson, Benjamin Unger, Sheldon Brook, Chaim Levin, Joe Brook, and Bella Levin uh, filed an action in New Jersey State Court claiming that Jonah was violating the consumer fraud statute in New Jersey because they said, we were sent for conversion therapy, and you know what? It didn't work. In fact, it made us worse. It made us depressed. It, 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 it really it, it was so harmful to us that we had to go to a gay-friendly shrink to straighten ourselves out. And so they sued, and they sued, uh, among other things, they wanted their money back. And it turns out that uh, Jonah was charging an arm and a leg for this therapy. But they also wanted to be reimbursed for the cost of going to a shrink and straightening themselves out after they, uh, I, I say advisedly, straightening themselves out. And they're not looking for conversion. They're, they're saying, okay, we accept we're gay. Now make us feel good about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what, what's really interesting, as you say, about the court's opinion is the court's description of what this therapy consisted of. Uh, so uh, it seems that the uh, the Jonah counselor who was providing the therapy, who's described in the opinion, is named Alan Downing. So just to read a little of this, uh, defendant Alan Downing instructed plaintiff Chaim Levin to quote say one negative thing about himself, remove an article of clothing, then repeat the process. Uh, in fact, repeat the process until you're nude. And then uh, Downing directed Levin to touch his penis and then his buttocks. Presumably this would psychologically uh, <laughs> connect all the negative things he thinks about himself with his genitals. <laughs> and this is supposed to make him straight. Okay. Uh, plaintiffs Benjamin Unger and Michael Ferguson engaged in similar disrobing activities with Downing. Downing instructed Unger to remove his shirt in front of a mirror and requested that he continue, but Unger refused. In addition, Unger participated in a group exercise in which Downing instructed him and other young men to remove their clothing and stand in a circle naked with Downing also nude. As with Unger, Downing instructed Ferguson to address in front of a mirror and repeatedly urged him to remove additional clothing, but Ferguson refused. Other one-on-one -on -one activities consisted of counseling clients to spend more time at the gym and to be naked with their fathers at bathhouses. We're talking about Orthodox Jews here who would go to a bathhouse. Uh, Jonah is marketed to Orthodox Jews. Downing also instructed Unger to beat an effigy of his mother with a tennis racket while screaming, as if killing her. Another Jonah counselor advised plaintiff Sheldon Brooke to wear a rubber band on his wrist and snap it each time he felt attracted to another man. 
Organized group activities included reenacting scenes of past abuse. For example, Downing instructed Levin to select an individual from the group to role-play his past abuser. The selected participant would repeat statements similar to those his abuser had made, such as, quote, I won't love you anymore if you don't give me blowjobs. And this goes on for a few more paragraphs in the opinion. I, I think, you know, and we're we, chuckling about this, but these are children who are well, now. Can you can just t- imagine t- t- how damaging this is to teenagers? It's, more yeah. like, it's probably teens. But the, the point is, you know, people talk about this, but it's rare to see an actual description of what goes on. And so this, this court has, in, in the course of holding, and I should mention the holding, they said, yes, Jonah can be held liable for the consequential uh, collateral costs uh, because they said this is analogous to requiring someone who, uh, who causes harm, physical harm, to pay for the medical expenses of curing the physical harm. They said, or someone who uh, sells a defective product that causes uh, physical injury to somebody, they could be required to make whole or, for example, to pay the cost of repairing the product. So this this is like repairing the product in a sense. They said the product you're selling here is this therapy. The therapy makes these people worse psychologically, so you should have to pay for the cost of making them better. Uh, so the court was ruling basically on the damage claim. The only issue in this ruling... Uh, was uh, Jonah was trying to dismiss the damage claim for the cost of subsequent therapy for these individuals. They weren't contesting anything else yet. All of that remains to be contested in the lawsuit on the merits. And now, interestingly, this all happened before conversion therapy was banned in New Jersey. Right. It's now illegal in New Jersey. Although we can't get it passed here in New York. <laughs> we have well, a Democratic governor, uh, unfortunately not a fully Democratic legislature. So we uh, did in this legislature. Yeah, the, assembly, the assembly approved it, I believe. Right. Uh, but the, the Senate wouldn't bring it up for a but vote. But Chris Christie signed it in New Jersey. Yeah. And, and Chris Christie, who has uh, recently uh, said – at the uh, at the governor's conference, he you know people people said to him, well look, you've got same sex marriage in New Jersey now. Uh, you agreed not to appeal the case. Marriage is over. The Republican Party shouldn't be focusing on this anymore. And he said, oh no no, we should fight it to the bitter end. You know. So he speaks out of both sides of his mouth a little bit. Uh, all right, <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Student or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in September. Enjoy the rest of your summer.